if you think the past cannot be changed, raise your hand. Okay? How many of you say it can be changed? We've got one person. How many of you are in the middle? How many of you are in the middle? So we got some that are in the middle. How many are wrong? <laughs> That's not where we're going today. <laughs> so in organizational theory, there's a group, uh, Carl Wick and Whitehead were the ones that really talked about it the most. It's called process theory, is that there are really no entities. Everything is a process, meaning that everything is a verb, not a noun. And kind of an example would be, who, who's a golfer in here? Do we have any golfers in here? Try to explain golf without describing it as an action. As an action? Mm-hmm. Painful. <laughs> <laughs> Which is still can be used as a verb. It's really difficult to describe anything without the actions, the process. And that's kind of one of the ideas behind it. And it leads to one of the theories within it is temporality. And we've experienced this over the last three weeks with our elders class that we've kind of really dealt into temporality. Temporality in organizations, and particularly when you're looking at anything where change may be taking place, is that you cannot forget the past. You cannot forget the present, and you cannot forget the future. And sometimes when people go through changes, they forget the past. Where's your groundwork? Where's your history? Where are you today, and where are you going? So temporality, you have to take into account the entire timeline. Everything doesn't take place in a one-snapshot bubble. It goes across time. It's like if you're an accountant and you go in and you do an audit of an organization, you're taking a one-day snapshot. As soon as you're finished with the audit, it's already in the past, and that organization has changed. The organization is changing as you're doing the audit. You're just taking a snapshot, but that does not change the past of the organization, does not change where they are today, and it's not going to change where they're going in the future. All of it's connected together. And it's an idea that came from George Mead. George Mead mostly is famous for a theory called symbolic interaction theory, but he came up with this particular line, and a lot of you were saying this. The past is both irrevocable and revocable. That has taken place, has taken place. It is what it was, while on the other hand, once it has slipped into the past, and with the passing of time, its meaning will inescapably change as new presents emerge to change the past of which it forms part. And we are seeing examples of this all across the country. Civil War statues are being torn down because the past is becoming something different than what it was before. And over the last couple of weeks, we studied this. We studied about what is the role of women in church, women leadership. How has it been a part of Otter Creek? And it's that becoming, the becoming of the past takes place as new events and experiences adds to the past. So that means something different. Past means something so how do I get rid of that speeding ticket? <laughs> <laughs> it took place. It's irrevocable, but... It still cost me money. It still cost you money, but has it changed you? 
Yeah. <laughs> it's not irrevocable. Remember, it says it's it's irrevocable. It's both irrevocable and revocable, meaning that the event took place, and you're never going to forget that event. It's it's not that it didn't take place. It does, but our perception of it can change over time. I've had a speeding ticket. It made me pretty mad at the time. Standing before the judge, I was pretty nervous, you know, when you had to go into the court. But over time, it's taught me that I need to watch what I'm doing on the road. And also, it's, it changes, too, as in uh, with passengers in the car that I care about, I slow down because I have care. So it does. It changes over time. Everything, the past is always in a state of becoming, the present is always in a state of becoming, the future is always in a state of becoming. It's an idea that came actually from Aristotle. He was one of the first ones. And as a person that teaches rhetorical theory and speech, I'm heavily influenced by Aristotle. And it was his idea that we're always in a constant state of becoming. We are not the same person we were five minutes ago. We are always becoming. So today, we're going to talk about healing, and we're going to look at a couple of examples. Dr. Furch, in his book, and we're going to look at a story, he talks about that there were shattered nature of contemporary life can completely overwhelm us. But the servant leader, which is where we came when looking at this, brings healing. The servant leader heals others. Because we've been looking at forgiveness through that lens of servant leadership. How a servant leadership puts the other person forward first. They fall into second or third place, usually the organizations in the middle in org theory, and then themselves are last. And how through that leadership they can bring about healing. So there's two stories I want to look at. One from Genesis, the second one from Dr. Birch's book. In the Old Testament, two of my absolute favorite stories... One is Joseph, the other is Ehud the left-handed. How many of you know who Ehud the left-handed is? Ehud the left-handed is the one that, from a masculine point of view, I really wish that I could do, because Ehud was the arm of God's justice, and he got to deliver it, and he got to deliver God's vengeance on the Midianites and killed the king, and, you know, and I would love sometimes to do that but it is Joseph. It is Joseph that really puts forth the idea that we want to look at today. So just kind of recap the story. Joseph is 17 years old. He has 11 brothers, one younger, 10 older. And he has what some would call the power of divination. He has the ability to have dreams and interpret dreams. And when he was 17, he had dreams. There were these bells of wheat. And 11 bells of wheat bowed to his bell of wheat. And he told it to his brothers. And it made them extremely angry. And then he had a second dream where there were 11 stars. And those 11 stars bowed to his star. And his brothers became enraged to the point of hate. So Jacob sends Joseph out where his brothers, ten older brothers, were keeping sheep. 
And when they saw him afar off, they wanted to kill him, and they were planning to kill him. Reuben spoke up and said, we cannot do this. We cannot kill him. Let's put him in this pit over here. So they put him in the pit, and the Bible doesn't say what Reuben was doing, but it seems that maybe Reuben overnight was the one in charge of tending the sheep where everybody else slept. But before he came back to camp, a group of Midianites that were headed to Egypt were coming along, and they sold Joseph into slavery. And then the Midianites sold him to the Egyptians. And of course, through the story, we know that he was in Potiphar's household. Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. He ran out naked. They put him into prison, and he stayed in prison for years. And during that time, again, he had dreams. The baker and the wine steward, the baker wound up being beheaded. The wine steward was restored back to Pharaoh. And then eventually Pharaoh started having dreams and the wine steward remembered and said, hey, there's a person over here that can interpret dreams. And so Pharaoh brings him in and he interprets the dreams about the seven years of fasting, famine, seven years of plenty. And then all of a sudden, Joseph, who was sold into slavery, becomes the second in command of all of Egypt. And then he was in charge of all the granaries. Well, the famine years come in. Jacob, I love this part, he says to his other sons, he's like, why are you standing around here doing nothing? We're starving. Go to Egypt and get us some food. And so they pack up and they come to Joseph. They come into a meeting with Joseph. He recognized them immediately. They did not. And he was using an interpreter, so he could understand what they were saying. They had no clue that he understood it. And they were accused of being spies. He accused them of being spies. And he made them leave one of their brothers there and told them that if they didn't go back and bring Benjamin, the youngest, back, they could not buy any more food and he would keep their other brother in prison all those times. So they left Simon. They go back. And on their way back, they noticed that not only did they have the food, but all of the silver that they had used to buy was back in their saddlebags. And then they were in great fear. They came to Jacob, told him what happened, said if Benjamin does not go, we will not get our brother back. And so Joseph, Jacob's like, no. You will not take Benjamin. Rachel was his beloved. Leah was the first one. You know, he worked seven years for Leah. He worked another seven years for Rachel, who was he wanted, who was the one he loved. And she died giving birth to Benjamin. He could not take any more grief. He would not do it. But the food ran out. And so they have to go back. Reuben had told him when they first come back that if I, I will guarantee Benjamin's safety. If if something happens to him, you may kill my two sons. Judah, finally on this last one, says, I will guarantee his safety. If something happens to Benjamin, you may hold it over my head for the remainder of your life. And so he relents. He lets Benjamin go. Again, they come into Egypt. Joseph has prepared them to eat in his house, which made them nervous. They're like, he's going to turn us all into slaves. 
But he releases their brother. They see Benjamin. And again, it was interesting, at the table they had a feast, but Benjamin was given five times the amount of food as all the other brothers. But they were happy, and they leave. Again, Joseph tells his servant, put all Fill their grain sacks up with everything that you can in it. Put all of their silver back and put my silver cup, my chalice that I drink from, and put it in Benjamin's saddle. They leave. He says, servant, go get them. And whoever has that in his bag, bring them back. And they're going to be slave to me here. They go out. They go out there. They say, sure, you can search us. We haven't done anything. We haven't stolen anything. And yeah, we'll agree that whoever it is will be a slave to you. And they open up Benjamin's bag. And there's the cup. They come back. They're before Joseph. Judah pulls him aside and says, Sir, Lord, you cannot do this. I have guaranteed his safety. If you don't let me take his place, my father will die. He will not be able to take this. And then this happens in Genesis 45. And Tracy's going to read it. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, and your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds and all that you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. 
and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterward, his brothers talked with them. When the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. It was not you that sent me to Egypt. It was God that sent me to Egypt. If you had read back, you know, he wept, he wailed, he cried, he begged, he pleaded for them to get him out of that pit. And they did not. And they sold him into Egypt. But here we are. Joseph was so overwhelmed with love that he wept. He had to leave the room. He had to send his servants out because he loved them so much. He had forgiven them because he knew that if he had not been sent to Egypt, his entire family would perish. The past changed. One more story to look at. And this one comes from Dr. Furch's best childhood friend growing up. He was a gentleman by the name of Sheldon McLean. And I love his description. He says, I knew Sheldon. He was the strongest and most authentic person that I knew. He was intense interior discipline. As a physical specimen, worthy of great images of masculine passed down through the ages. He was half Cree. He stood six foot four inches tall and looked intimidating. His face and his dark eyes striking. His muscular frame, leaf, quick, and powerful. And sadly, he died as a young man at the age of 30. But most importantly is the reason that he told the story. And these are the words of Sheldon and his experience and what happened to him and how he went through his Joseph story. He said, when I was three years old, my parents were divorced. And myself, being the youngest of three boys, I was raised along with my two older brothers by my father. He was a single parent, and as a school teacher, we had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time with him. So I developed a really strong relationship with my dad, and I loved him a lot. I felt loved by him. And when I was three, my parents divorced, and my mother went up to Canada. They divorced because, one, my father was physically abusive, and my mother was an alcoholic. She went up to Canada and lived her life up there away from us and made no contact with us at all. She never wrote. She never called. So I felt abandoned. I felt a lot of hatred towards her. I had a strong need to be loved by my mother and to be denied was very painful for me. I hated my mom as much as I loved my dad. I was hurt. It was like she was dead or we were dead, and there was nothing there. When I was nine years old, my father died, and I was scared that my mother was going to come down from Canada and try to get custody of me. But she never came. She never even made an attempt, and that was even worse. It cemented my feelings that she didn't care about me, she didn't love me, because of that I hated her. The first time we ever talked on the phone, I was 16. It was really strange 
an awkward conversation. There wasn't much speaking involved, just a lot of silent time on the phone, a lot of moments of hesitation, of not knowing what to say, not knowing what to ask, and just the basic uneasiness and discomfort. Shortly before that, she had called my stepfather, who was my legal guardian. She called him at work and said in a drunken voice, I want my sons back. Then she called me and I was terrified. At the end of it, she said, I love you, son. And I could tell that it was kind of a searching statement that she was trying to give me a cue to say, I love you, Mom. I just couldn't do it. I said, yeah, I got to go now. I said goodbye, and as I did, I heard her swearing as she slammed the phone down. And that was pretty traumatic for me because I felt I should have been able to say, I love you, Mom, but it just at that point, I was unable to. She was a stranger to me. It would have been an empty statement it would have meant nothing to me. So I was 16 the first time I had contact with my mother. That was not the first time I had tried to make contact. When I was seventh, in the seventh grade, I had gone to basketball camp and a speaker there said something that hit me hard. One thing he said was, is that the thing you hate the most is the thing you will become. Knowing I had deep hatred for my mom and knowing that she was an alcoholic and the fact that I was a Native American Indian who may be predisposed to becoming an alcoholic, I feared I might become like her, and if I didn't work through my feelings. Unless I chose to forgive her, then I would most likely become like her. So I wrote her a letter. I was pretty young at the time, and I probably could have done a better job of saying what I, what I did and that's probably the best way I knew how to say it at the time. As the years have gone by, I've come to terms with the different aspects of that forgiveness and reconciliation to my mother. I had the opportunity to come to a place where I was in contact with a lot of people who really knew how to love, and a lot of people that really loved life and lived life strongly and knew the aspects and principles of forgiveness. They were beginning to heal my heart. And so I was able to get some kind of mild counseling growing up. But when I was 16, even though I had written the letter as a 7th grader, I still had a lot of feelings and a lot of hurt and unresolved emotions. There were issues there that needed to be settled. And I never once said, I love you to my mother. I just said, I forgive you. And I think there are two different things for me. I really believe that I could forgive her but it didn't mean that I loved her. When I was 18, after my mom called me, maybe two or three year, two or three times between the ages of 16 and 18, an opportunity came for me to see her. My older brother was getting married, and a month before the wedding, she called and said she would be coming down to the wedding. I was really fearful of that. I was fearful of this issue of saying I love you to her, and I felt I needed to be able to say that to her because I had written to her and I had said I had forgiven her. I had been dealing with those emotions of resentment and abandonment for years between writing as a 7th grader and then the possibility of seeing her at 18. There were a lot of years there. A lot of gradual healing took place. And as I got older, I think I was able to work through some of those feelings slowly. And by the time I was 18, yes, I was afraid. But I was pretty much 
come to terms with a lot of the abandonment. I had been given a home through the state. I had been blessed with two parents who cared for me, provided for me, gave me opportunities to succeed in life, and I had been around people that had furthered and really focused their love to meet my needs and to help me in areas of weakness, areas such as insecurity that had come from abandonment. I had started to believe in myself and not to be ashamed, but to accept and actually be proud of my past. As a Native American Indian, I have a heritage to be proud of. I needed to say strong, I needed to be strong, I needed to be a breaker of stereotypes. It may be true that some of the stereotypes of Native American Indians are based on fact, but there are exceptions, and I wanted to be an exception. But I was afraid. She called and said that she was coming to the wedding, so she came down four weeks later. And during those four weeks, in between the time that she called and the wedding, I prayed every night. My prayer along these lines was, God, I really need your help in this. I need your love because I don't have any love for her in my heart. I want to be able to say I love you, Mom, to her, and that I want it to be genuine. I want it to be strong, not just something I said. So I ask you, give me your love so that I may be able to show her love and that you would have work in me to whatever it takes. I prayed this every night before falling asleep for a month. And at the end of the time, she came down to the wedding and I was taken aback by her appearance. I remembered her as a young child when I was three years old. And that was the last time I'd seen her. I remembered her as being young and pretty. She had long black hair. She was tall and had a beautiful face. And being native Canadian Indian, she had dark skin and dark eyes. She was a pretty lady. But the first time I saw her at the wedding, I was amazed. I was taken aback by the changes. Her face showed pain and a lot of years. Her face was haggard. It was hard. And there was no light in her eyes. Nothing that showed joy. There was nothing that showed happiness. And that day, she could, should be rejoicing with her son about getting married. She was hardened. Like she had just didn't show any emotion. It was harsh. She had had a hard life as evidenced in her face. She had a lot of scars. And those scars were because of what she did, because of her pain of living without her son. She was fairly tall at 5'11", and she still had long black hair. But you could tell that she had been pretty once, but there was nothing now that could really be attractive. She kind of stooped when she walked. There was no confidence in her. That weekend, we probably spent about six to seven hours total together, during which I smelled alcohol on her breath constantly. I remember the night after the wedding, we went back to the hotel room. She had to pick up some clothes, and when I walked into the room, it smelled like a liquor store. It had the stench of hard liquor, the same that was on her breath. I remember walking out of the hotel room and just saying to myself, it's no big deal, it's no big deal. The next day she was leaving at about 10.30 in the morning. I remember standing in my foster parents' living room. Everyone had gathered there to say goodbyes, and she was nervous. You could tell. She was kind of hesitant, shifting back and forth, and I was pretty nervous. I was praying the whole time to myself, just, God, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to be strong. I was pretty emotional, and I was ready to cry. 
My mom stood across the room. There's her 18-year-old her son. She had never been a part of his life. She had no contact whatsoever, and she never heard the words, I love you, come from my lips. And I'm sure she was scared of rejection. I'm sure she was scared of a lot of things. We've never talked openly about her alcohol or anything like that. We just kind of skirted the issue. She said, well, we've got to be going. It's a long road ahead. We have about a nine-hour drive back to Canada. She was making small talk, and she was kind of standing still. We didn't know what to say. I walked across the room, took three steps, and put my arms out, and she took a step towards me. I embraced her and said, I love you, Mom. It was the only time I had embraced her, and it was a real strong moment. My left arm was underneath her right arm, my right arm on her shoulder. Her hair was kind of in my face. It was real close. So our bodies were close together to one another, and I remember having my hand on her back and just drawing her to me and holding her strongly for a while. I made sure it felt strong and not weak. It was the ending part of the story of forgiveness my forgiveness of her. It was the healing for me to reach out and say, I love you, Mom. It was like saying, I forgive you, I love you, it's okay. The embrace had a lot to do with forgiveness. All those years of abandonment and pain and hatred towards her, the touch was an acknowledgement of the relationship that existed between us as a son and a mother. The bond that had been reestablished and recognized and acknowledged in the eyes of others it was as if I was giving her something. I was giving her her son back in the sense that I was giving my heart to her as a son and looking to her as my mother. I was acknowledging that she was my mother, yet realizing at the same time she most likely wouldn't act on, what, on that. She wouldn't be involved herself in any differently than, than after we had touched. I gave her the freedom and the opportunity to be there. And at that moment in time, she was my mother. Both in Joseph's situation and in this situation, the healing wasn't necessarily for the person that had been harmed. The healing was for the person that had done the harm. Joseph forgave his brothers. His, their brothers were terrified of him. They were in anguish for what they had done and they had carried that burden all of those years. And Joseph hugged them. He loved them. And he let it be known that they did not send him to Egypt. God did. Sheldon recognized that God put him in a position where he had people that loved him, that helped him work through this pain. And God helped him to say those words because his mother needed to hear, I love you. Changing the past. If you have not had the opportunity, and I know we've talked about it before, but chapter 12 of this book is fantastic. Talking about love and healing. All about love by the late Bell Hooks. And in that she comes to this and she talks about love heals. When we are wounded in the place where we would know love, it is difficult to imagine that love really has the power to change everything. No matter what has happened in our past, when we open our hearts to love, we can live as if born again. Not forgetting the past, but seeing it in a new way. 
letting it live inside us as in a new way. We can change the past. And God, through love, through forgiveness and healing, we can change those past. I mentioned in a previous class about the difficulty that took place when a rift came between my mother and myself at at the time that my father had cancer. And we split apart. And it took many years for me to work through. And I could relate to Sheldon's story of that I forgave her, but I did not trust her. And for me, trust was part of the love. And it took me years to work through that. I still only trusted her with certain things, and I still held some back. But in the end, I got to the part of loving her. She needed to know that I did not hold against her what she said when my father was ill. I needed to let that go. It was healing for me, but it was also healing for her. The same way that when Christ died on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He did it because we needed healing. Next week, we're going to recap and kind of go through everything that we've talked about so far this semester and this quarter in this class. And then last week, in two weeks, think about sharing a story of forgiveness if you're willing. If not, write it. Send it to JB and we'll do it anonymously. Thank you for today.